Well, good morning. Gosh, it even sounds weird to say that. It's been a strange week, a saddening week. Like many of you, I woke up on Thursday morning to read about the shooting at Borderline, and two thoughts immediately popped in my head. The first was, not again, not again. And then the second one was, wow, this one's close. This one's close to home. Some of you I know, as we've heard stories throughout the week, you have neighbors, friends, family members who were involved, killed, affected by this shooting. And so I come to you today, man, what do I say? Humble. Gosh, these are big things. I pray that I am able to encourage you in these next few moments together to give you hope that you might take to others so you can walk alongside those that are hurting, even in the midst of your own pain, because these are not short things. These are, this is pain that will not subside soon. Like many of you, a few hours later, I looked out the, doors, uh, the windows of my office, which face off this way, and I just see smoke billowing from the hillsides here. And then there's that mad dash for information and rumors are going around from some of my neighbors. We're being evacuated. I run home. We're driving around checking the fires. And the next couple of days, I know that was what many of us were doing. And it's that weird part is as I'm standing there at night watching the, the fire crest the hills by our house, feeling that conflicted sort of, God, thank you that the wind's blowing the other direction. And wait, there's so many people that direction. These are the kind of weeks that, man, I don't know about you, you just want to go back to bed. <laughs> Wait, go back to bed and go, can I just wake up when things go back to normal? But then with the frequency of these devastating wildfires, with the frequency of these mass shootings, isn't there that thought in all of our heads, will things go back to normal? Or is this normal? Do I want to live in a world where this is normal? Gosh, when we experience things like what our community, what our neighbors, what many of us have experienced this week, it can be easy to get discouraged, to lose heart. When we see how evil and destructive human beings can be to each other, when we see how violent and destructive fire can be, when we realize how life can change like that, there are so many reasons to get discouraged. And in some ways, I would say Paul was in a very similar situation when he wrote 2 Corinthians, right? As we've been in this book, we're chatting chapter 4 this morning. We've been hearing about Paul's discouragement. We've been hearing about Paul's trials, that there were these supposed fellow Christian teachers that were opposing him and undermining his ministry. That in the midst of that, he had people who actually did oppose his message, who would violently attack him and chase him from town to town as he was just trying to bring the good news about Jesus to people. We also find out in chapter 11 that, that even Paul experienced his fair share, more than his fair share of natural disasters. We find out that he was shipwrecked three times. I don't know about you, I'd, I'd swear off ocean travel. But Paul knew what it was like to come out of a situation with nothing but the clothes on his back. And here's what he learned in that experience. 
We've seen this verse a couple of times, but in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, look, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul wasn't naive. He didn't look at the world through rose-colored glasses. He didn't think it was all puppy dogs and rainbows. He knew how cold and dark and hostile this world could be, and yet he had learned to depend upon God. He had learned to rely upon God and therefore to go, I can, I can still serve, I can still love, even in the midst of suffering, even staring death in the face, because I know that God has proved that he can raise the dead. And so then we come to our passage for this morning. And if you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. If you will, once you turn there, if you're able, would you stand with me? If you need a Bible, we got some guys who would love to put them in your hands. It'll be up on the screen, but once you find your place, go ahead and stand with me as we read this passage together. Starting in verse 1. Therefore... Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can be seated. I really toyed, and, and, and the, as, the, as the news came through of what was going on, I really was praying a lot. Do I do something else? Do we stick with this passage? And I really... I really do believe that there is something very timely that God has us here in this passage today in light of what's gone in our world. But do you see the flow in this passage? Paul says, we don't lose heart in verse 1. Even though he says in verses 3 and 4, there's a lot of reasons to lose heart. There's a lot of reason to despair. There's a lot that we're up against. But we don't lose heart. Why? Because in verse 6, he says, there's even greater reasons to keep going. So that's kind of the flow we're going to follow this morning. We can go through. We're going to start by looking at what are the harsh realities in our world that may, might make us despair. But what are the even greater realities of what God is doing in our world, in our midst, in our lives? 
that can make it so that like Paul, we can say, we do not lose heart. So if you will, let's start in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, he says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In some ways, Paul here is picking up on the thought we saw in last week's passage. That there is this covering, this, this blinding reality that keeps people from seeing the truth of the gospel. And why is it that they are veiled, blinded to the truth of the hope that we have in Jesus? It's because they're perishing. When events like the shooting at Borderline happen, our natural tendency is to ask the question, why? Why would someone do this? Why do things like this happen? And there's, on one level, we don't know. We don't know what's going through someone's head when they make the decision to do something so evil, so destructive. But then on another level, we do know why things like this happen. Because we live in a world, we live in a human race that is perishing, that is dying. That all of the human race from Adam and Eve on has been born under the curse of sin and death that the Bible said lies over everyone. We also live, as Paul says in verse 4, in a world that is under the rule of an imposter. In verse 4, he says, in their case, in the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The God of this world, as you see, I put it up there, the word is actually age. It's this very Jewish concept that there is this age, this current age that is dominated by Satan and sin and death, but... This is not the only age that there is or will be. There is an age to come in which if this one's dominated by Satan, sin, and death, this one will be dominated by righteousness and peace and life with God forever. But at the same time, he says, we still live in this age, and there is this one who's called the God of this age. Who is that? This is a reference to Satan. This is a reference to the the devil, The enemy of God, the one that we first encounter in Genesis 3 as that serpent who comes in to deceive Adam and Eve, to listen to his voice instead of the voice of God. And when they did, when they listened to him, when they ate the fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat from, they came under that curse of sin and death. And every single one of us have been born under that same curse of sin and death, too. Here's the part that's hard for me to understand. Though Satan is an imposter, though he is a deceiver, yet God in his sovereignty, in his complete control over everything, has permitted Satan to exercise a great deal of control, a great deal of power over this present broken world system. Look at how else he's described in scripture. In 1 John verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 19, it says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. 
In Ephesians 2, Paul says it very similarly, where he talks about all of us before, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, before God opened your eyes to the gospel, which we'll get into in a second, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, the way that this world works, and how does this world work? What is the way of this world? It's to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In John 12, Jesus himself refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. This is harsh. This is intense. I don't get it. Yeah, but, but here's what I understand. Though God has permitted Satan in this age to exercise a great deal of power over this age, it is clear from Scripture that that's just a temporary arrangement. God intends to oust Satan from his supposed position and reassert his authority over all that is rightfully his. So when in 1 John 5, 19, John says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, that's only after he's already told us that the reason that the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, he rules now, but Jesus is here to change that. As a matter of fact, in John 12, when Jesus himself refers to Satan as the ruler of this world, he does it in this context. He's heading to Jerusalem to be crucified, and he says, you know what I'm going to Jerusalem to do? Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan is the God of this age, we have to understand what he also says in Galatians 1. That if Satan is the God of this age, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. Do you get the point of this? That though Satan has been allowed to exert control in this present age, now that Jesus has come, if you will, there's a new sheriff in town. And Satan's time is up. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I don't lose heart when I preach the gospel and it's rejected and I suffer for it because I understand there's a greater reality going on. That as I bring this good news of the kingdom of God breaking in through the ministry of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, I understand that I'm bringing that kingdom into the midst of another kingdom. I am bringing it in the midst of this conflict between two opposing ages, between two opposing kingdoms, between Jesus, the son of God, and Satan, the God of this age. We have to understand in this battle, this battle that rages is not being fought about who to, to see who will win. This battle is not being fought to see who will win. That, my friends, is already a foregone conclusion. From the moment the stone rolled away and Jesus walked out of that tomb, he sealed the decisive victory. And Satan knows it. 
Revelation 12 tells us that part of the reason why the God of this age works so hard to deceive and enslave and destroy people is because he knows his time is short. And he wants to bring as many people down into destruction with him as possible. And as Paul says in our passage this morning, the main way that Satan seeks to exert this destructive power is through blindness. That he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's that when people hear this good news about Jesus, that he is God come to us as a human, as one of us, that he died and rose again, both to satisfy God's judgment against our sin so that we might be forgiven, also to beat death so that we might now have eternal life, to free us from the God of this age, to free us from Satan so that we might follow him, that he did this to transform us to love him and obey him, and ultimately, as we saw last week, to become like him. That when people hear that message, that all of this can be received by faith, by dependent trust in Jesus, Satan's go-to strategy is to make it so that when people hear that message, it just skips off the surface. That they go, eh, let's see what else is on. And it never sinks in. It goes in one ear and out the other. In many ways, this is similar to what Jesus himself said when he told the parable of the soils. Remember that? He talked about the farmer who goes out and scatters his seed, and some of it falls on a path. And because it's on the stony path, there's nowhere for it to sink in. And so the birds come along and eat it up. And as Jesus explained that parable, he says, you know what? Satan's like those birds in that parable that he comes and he snatches that good news. He snatches the reality of the gospel away from someone and it never sinks in. Gosh, that's such a, that's a heartbreaking reality. It's a one, it's, but it's one that Jesus was well acquainted with and Paul was well acquainted with and many of us are well acquainted with. Paul says, look, I share the gospel, I share about Jesus with some people, and it doesn't matter how passionate, how clear, how educated, how convicting I am or try to be, they still can't see it. Some of you, that's been your experience with people in your life, friends, neighbors, family members, your, your children, your parents, siblings, you keep seeking to be faithful and sharing the hope that you have found in Jesus. And all you get is, eh, let's see what else is on. Or even, sometimes more refreshing, that's, that's really nice for you. And I would say this to you. As long as there is breath, there is hope. Don't stop. Don't stop looking for opportunities to share the hope that you have in Jesus. Don't stop looking for opportunities to love and serve. Sometimes the best way, if someone's tired of hearing it, don't stop sharing, but show them. Show them through deeds. Show them that you're not just in it to sign them up for Amway or something like that. You're here because you truly care about their soul and don't lose heart. 
As we see in this passage, Paul didn't lose heart, even when people violently rejected the gospel. Because he, I think it was always at the forefront of his mind how violently he rejected the gospel before Jesus came to him, before God opened his eyes. He knew just how blind he had been. I mean, he had been so absolutely convinced that Jesus was not truly Israel's Messiah that he made it his life's mission to chase down, arrest, and throw in prison those who did believe that Jesus was Messiah. And we read in in the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts that, that Paul was there in some sort of official role giving approval to the proceedings. It is right for you to do this. Here, I'll hold your coat. And then, by the grace of God, on that day as he's traveling on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him in his blinding, brilliant glory. And Paul experienced what it was like to be transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. And he was never the same afterward. Even when he experienced persecution, just like he had persecuted others, he didn't... He didn't lose heart. He understood it. Look, I get it. I get where you're at. I was there. But here's what happened to me. Verse six. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, guys, the miracle that God did in my life is on par with what God did in the very beginning when he said, let there be light. Only here, it wasn't speaking light over creation. It was speaking light into my hardened, sinful heart that would not believe, that could not believe because the God of this age blinded me to it. Jesus flooded Paul's heart with his glory and there was nothing that the God of this age could do to stop it. Do you know what that's like? Have you experienced that? Have you encountered the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Like seriously, do you yourself Know what it's like. Have you experienced what it's like when you're hard, stubborn, heck no, I'm going to do this my way, when suddenly your heart softens and thaws? You stop trying to sprinkle a little Jesus into your life. You stop trying to make a deal with him and say, okay, I'll give you this if you give me this. But you just fall on your knees before him and you say, my Lord and my God, here's all of me. You can have it. Have you experienced that? If not, I pray that today is the day you do. It's not about how polished and convicting I can be. Some of you know, you've heard this message a hundred times. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time. Maybe for some of you, it feels like both. I've heard this a hundred times and every time it just skips off the surface. It just went in one ear and out the other. You feel like that stony path. Man, I know I've heard this before, but it never stuck around long enough for me to even think about it. And my prayer for you today is in spite of the imperfections of the communicator, I pray that God would speak through this and say within your heart, let there be light. 
But I know many of you have experienced that. God has shined his light into your heart. You do believe. You are those, like we talked about last week from 318, that as you continue to look to Jesus, you're experiencing that transformation, not all at once, but from one degree of glory to another. And I would say this to you, for those of you in here who are followers of Jesus, the light that God has shown in you, he intends to shine through you into the darkness of our world. And we've seen a lot of that this week, haven't we? Sometimes our, our, our nice suburban area, the veil gets pulled back. Oh, that's right. Sin's here too. Oh, that's right. The God of this age still exerts authority over this place too. And when we see that darkness, when we see that evil, when we see that destruction, the tendency for all of us is to retreat, to go, how can I protect me and mine? To turn inward. But I would say to you, that's just another way of losing heart. That's just another way of believing that the darkness is too strong. That the light that God has shown within us is too feeble to counteract it. But that's simply not true. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5? He said he called his people to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see the change, the, the good deeds, the change that I'm working in your life and praise your Father in heaven. But where is that light supposed to shine? Check out how Paul says it in Philippians 2. I love this. On the one hand, he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Where? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Some of you, honestly, the events that happened this week made you go, that's right, that's why I protect my kids. They only go the places where I let them go. We protect everything. We only let certain church people even into our life. And I would say to you, God intends for the light that he's shown you to shine out among and in the midst of the crookedness and twistedness and darkness and evil around us. You need to counteract that natural desire to pull even more inward and say, no, the events that we've experienced this week, we need to push outward. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. We just sang that, right? Many of you, God has called you already or will call you this week into places of deep hurt and suffering and pain. That is where he is taking the light that he's shown you. Bless, serve, sacrifice, show mercy like Jesus has shown you. Not everyone will accept it. Not everyone will see and go, how must I be saved? But here's the confidence we have. Some will. Some will. We don't know who that's going to be. That's why 
Our responsibility is to share this gospel. Our, God, our responsibility is to share the good news with those around us. We don't know who will believe. God knows. He tells us he knows who are his, that as we share the gospel, God calls to his people through that gospel. He calls to people through his word, and his call is effective. It's stronger than all of Satan's efforts to blind people. That's why Paul says in verse two, look, I don't need gimmicks. I don't need to get the fog machines just right and the, the lights just right and get the keyboardist to come in with the, the note that stirs your heart at just the right time and finagle you into this thing. He says, look, we've renounced disgraceful underhanded. We we're not shysters in this whole thing. We don't need to manipulate. Why? By the open statement of the truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. He says, look, by the open explanation of what Jesus has done for me, and as I seek to live a life that shows, no, no, seriously, this actually is what God has done for me. I actually am being transformed by this gospel through the honest, humble, confident sharing of what God's done for us. As we faithfully do that, the Holy Spirit will be faithful to remove some veils. God will be faithful to shine light into some hearts, and they will believe. Every single one of us in here who is a follower of Jesus is proof that God still does that. He is still saying to dark, hardened hearts, let light shine. Amen? Every day, all over the world, God is still saying, let there be light. And every day, all over the world, do you know what he uses? The faithful witness of people like you and me. As we share what we know about Jesus, as we serve and sacrifice for the sake of others, as we come alongside those that are suffering, even when God calls us ourselves to suffer. That's what we'll see even more of next week. Paul says, look at my life. Things aren't going so great, but you know what happens? When I'm pressed, I'm not crushed. When I'm persecuted, I know God has not abandoned me. When I'm struck down, I'm not destroyed. And you know what people see? Wow, this is obviously not Paul's power that's doing this. We are these clay pots to reveal, these commonplace everyday people, to reveal that the power at work within us doesn't come from us, it comes from God. That's what God uses to shine light. Not a perfect witness, but progress from one degree of glory to another. Are you a part of that? Are you a part of that light? Are you a part of shining that light into dark places? Here's what we'll spend our last couple of minutes on. Verse five. Paul says, understand. I, I seek to commend my life. I want my life to back up my message. But at the end of the day, what, what I'm concerned about is not that you get me, not that you understand where I'm coming from. We proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's talk about that for a second. In light of what we've seen this week, the message that we carry, the light that we share, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know what that word Lord means? He's master. He's king. He rules over all. And as Paul says in Philippians, one day every knee 
will bow. Every tongue will confess, that's right, you are Lord. But we're not there yet. That day has not yet arrived. We bring a message of Jesus as Lord into a world that actively opposes Jesus as Lord. That the God of this age still blinds people from seeing the goodness of having Jesus as Lord. And spiritually blind people sometimes do terrible things. And we wonder how the lordship, the rule of Jesus, fits with terrible things that we see in our world. So often God's patience with evil is misunderstood to either be a lack of power or a lack of care for those who suffer. That either Jesus isn't strong enough to stop it or he doesn't care enough to stop it. And I'll tell you right now, man, I don't know why things happen like what's happened in our area this week. Mass shootings, people losing everything. But I do know, as I study scripture, I know this. It's not that God isn't powerful enough. And it's not that he doesn't care. I don't understand it. Man, this is the conversation that I, maybe you've been in the same place. This is the conversation that's been going on between me and the Lord. And really, it's been more me talking. I don't get it, Lord. Why? How many more times? Like, I I know Isaiah 55 says that your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. But I'm honest, I really don't understand your ways right now. I know you see this. I know you're grieved by the evil in your world. I know that your holy wrath is kindled by it. And yet you're patient with us. How long though? How many more times are we gonna wake up to headlines like we did this week? I don't understand it. But I am learning to trust God even when I don't understand him. It's a little bit like Job. Some of you guys are familiar with the book of Job in the Old Testament. Gosh, when you read about what he suffered, huh, losing everything, his children, everything, his wife turning on him and everything. Three friends at first coming to comfort him and then basically just being like sin pokers. You did this wrong, you did that wrong. And he's just going, seriously. And he just begins to cry out to God and say, why is this happening to me? Did I do something wrong? I don't know if I did. Do you see me, Lord? Do you love me? Do you care about me? Why? And after chapter after chapter of of Job crying out to God, asking why, here's the crazy part. When God finally answers Job, he never addresses the why question. At least not directly. You know what he does? Okay, I know you're asking why, you're asking why, you're asking why. Let me show you who I am. And about a hundred different ways, over and over, God just says, here's who I am. Here's what I'm like. And at the end of that, Job says, okay, that's enough for me. Before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you, and I'm satisfied. That what God did, Job was asking why. But God answered Job's why question by showing Job who he was. And in the end, 
knowing who God is, was enough for Job to trust God with the why. And so, I stand here this morning and I don't know why terrible things happen in this world. I don't presume to know why. But here's what I know about who our God is. Our God does not stand aloof and detached from the suffering that goes on in this world. Isaiah 53, verse 3, reminds us that the Savior, Jesus Christ, the one we follow, is a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like. But sometimes we know what it's like when people almost like, they're trying to help, but it seems like they're just comparing their situation to ours. Oh yeah, I've been through something too. Oh, you ain't seen nothing. Listen to my story. And there is a sense in which we know Jesus suffered. He looked evil full in the face more than any of us have or will. He knows what it's like. But here's the thing that Isaiah 53 continues to tell us. Not only did Jesus know sorrow for himself, but surely he has borne our grace. He has carried our sorrows. If you're here this morning and you are grieving, Man, I hope that this brings you comfort. God is not detached. He sees, he cares. He is big enough to carry this with you. And I pray like how that verse ends, that you would find peace and healing as you walk with Jesus. We follow a God who doesn't stand far off from our suffering. He cares, he sees, he knows. And ultimately, this is what I want to end with. We follow a God who will one day bring all suffering and evil to an end. It will not always be like this. Do not be lulled by the repetition of tragedy to think this is just the way the world is. It's the way this age is now, but this age already is drawing to a close and the age to come has already dawned. You know how I know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. God raises the dead and he will make all things new. I want to close by reading one more passage to you. It's one that has brought me much comfort this week. And I hope it does to you as well. It's actually a passage that many commentators think that Paul might have had in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians 4, because it, it talks a lot about light shining in darkness as well. It's one that we sometimes more uh, frequently associate with Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9. You can turn there if you like, but let me just read this over us and then we'll pray. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, this oppressor that he has in mind, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults, 
And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It pictures all the garments after some great battle being burned up because it's over. The battle is done. And why does this happen? What is the great victory? Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government, the rule of this world shall be upon his shoulder. And you know what we're going to call him. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. When Jesus is king, peace will keep growing and growing and growing and that we will never see the end of how peaceful and increasing the good rule of Jesus will be. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And look at this last part. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you wonder if God cares in the midst of the suffering of our world, I pray that that brings you comfort. The world that we all want to live in, the world in which justice and righteousness and peace know no end continue from this time forth and forevermore. You know how we're going to get there? Because the zeal of the Lord will do it. His passionate, passionate desire to bring this good world for his people. That's how we'll get there. We're not there yet. We shine light into the darkness of this world because Jesus has already shined light in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, we confess we all feel small after a week like this. We're confronted with how much we don't control that we often think we do. Lord, we long for your kingdom to come. We long for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for the, those of us that have already bowed to your will, those of us who are, have already confessed you as king, Lord, would you lead us to walk more and more in your good rule that we might bring light in the dark places. I pray for our community. I pray for our neighbors that are hurting. I pray that you would position in place and send us to bring light and comfort, to speak peace, to be there for the long haul. This is what we're here for, to shine the light that you've shown us into the darkness of our world. Would you do that through us, Lord Jesus, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. We ask this in your name. Amen.